The Leslie Marshall Show, a true democracy in talk radio. Of, for, and by you, the people. Live from our nation's capital, it's Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. Hi, I'm Brad Bannon. I'm the host of Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. I'm a national democratic strategist, a columnist for The Hill in Washington, DC, and a political analyst for news radio stations KNX in Los Angeles and WGN in Chicago. My company, Bannon Communications Research, polls for progressive issue groups, labor unions, and Democrats. BannonCR.com is the sponsor of today's show. Uh, If you have any suggestions uh, for Deadline DC, or if you want to learn more about my uh, political polling company, you can reach me on Twitter. My Twitter handle is BradBannon all one word. This week on Deadline DC, our first guest will be Abdullah Fayad, who is a writer and editorial board member at the Boston Globe. He's here to discuss how to foolproof the presidency to stop the nation being ravaged by another Donald Trump. Then, Democratic strategist Tim Zink and progressive activist Mark Grimaldi will join me on the provocative progressive political panel to discuss the big political news of the week. Uh, First, though, before we go to our first guest, we have this clip from Representative Eric Saul Swalwell uh, of California, who talks about his uh, invasion of his privacy by the Trump administration. This is about everyday Americans, you know, who don't want to see their government uh, weaponized law enforcement against them because of their political beliefs. And I hope Trump supporters who fear Big Brother see that Donald Trump was the biggest brother we've ever seen uh, in our country who did weaponize this. That was Representative Swalwell. Our guest in this half hour is Abdullah Fayard. Uh, who is a writer and opinion writer and editorial board member at the Boston Globe. He was previously a researcher at The Atlantic and holds a degree in economics from American University. His Twitter handle is Abdallah underscore Fayad. That's A-B-D-A-L-L-A-H underscore F-A-Y-Y-A-D. Uh, Abdallah, thanks for joining us today on uh, Deadline DC. Uh, first, uh, tell us what Representative Swalwell was uh, talking about, because it's a good introduction uh, to the uh, article in the Boston Globe. Well, thanks so much, Brad, for, for having me on. Um, you know, Representative Swalwell was talking about uh, the new reporting uh, that came out last week uh, that found that the Trump Department of Justice um, had seized phone records um, from from certain members of Congress and their families and aides. Um, and, and on the Democratic side, people who were investigating the president um, or people who can be perceived as political opponents uh, to, to former President Trump. Um, and and 
you know, that comes on the heels of, uh, of um, you know, reports that showed that the, the Trump Department of Justice also seized the phone records um, of journalists at The Washington Post, The New York Times and CNN. Um, and so, um, you know, that's that's the, the preface to all of this. Um, and, you know, it's it's very alarming um, that the Department of Justice uh, would do this and they haven't really given um, a good reason um, as to uh, or, or any pretense as to why um, they seized those records. Uh, OK, well, that uh, gives us uh, a good uh, segue into the article. Uh, the editorial board uh, of the Boston Globe uh, published last week, uh, which talks about the abuses under the Trump administration and the steps we can take to make sure it doesn't happen again under another president. Why don't you talk about that? Well, so the, the, the Trump presidency, um, you know, was a stress test on our institutions. Um, and, and what we found out was that our institutions were unprepared uh, for a tyrannical president like Donald Trump. Um, so, you know, Donald Trump effectively exposed just how weak our checks and balances are um, against an authoritarian type leader um, who is unwilling to be bound by norms or traditions um, that we have come to expect um, from people who assume that office. Um, and so the purpose of this project is to urge lawmakers, um, you know, and the Biden administration um, to implement a set of new reforms um, that would prevent future presidents um, from abusing their power in the first place, and also implement a set of reforms um, that would allow our institutions uh, to enforce our anti-corruption norms and laws um, so that we can actually hold presidents accountable. Right now, uh, one of the lessons that we learned from the Trump administration um, is that the president of the United States is above the law. Um, you know, you often hear the phrase um, that people like to say that nobody in the United States, including the president of the United States, is um, uh, above the law. But the, the reality is, is that, um, you know, the law has simply not applied to the president of the United States. Um, Richard Nixon um, said it best uh, when he said that the, uh, you know, if the president does it, then it's it can't be illegal. Um, you know, obviously that's not true. Uh, but, you know, in how we decide to enforce our laws, unfortunately, um, you know, Nixon has been uh, proved correct. Um, you know, when the president of the United States does something, no matter how corrupt or crooked or illegal, uh, we just simply do not have the mechanisms in place um, to enforce our laws and hold presidents accountable. They simply get away um, with with any abuse of power that happens in the Oval Office. Uh, let's talk about uh, uh, I want to we'll go into that and others in more detail. But why don't you uh, just talk about some of the uh, suggestions uh, that you made in the uh, Globe article? Uh, so we made a series of suggestions um, from looking at nepotism laws in order to um, prevent presidents uh, from appointing, uh, you know, their their children and or um, in-laws, as was the case with Donald Trump, appointing Ivanka uh, Trump and, and, and her husband, Jared Kushner, his son-in-law, um, to high-ranking White House uh, positions um, that, that, in effect, um, you know, undermined uh, the White House's ability uh, to function um, with its loyalty 
loyalty to the people. Um, you know, it, it made it created an environment where um, loyalties uh, lied uh, to the president and not not our democratic institutions. Um, and so we look at, um, you know, how to enforce nepotism laws um, against a president of the United States. Uh, we look at reforming the pardon power um, and not necessarily to to significantly limit the pardon power, but to prevent it from being corrupted again um, in the way that Donald Trump used it, um, which is to give pardons to um, associates, um, you know, people involved in investigations um, that he had been involved with. Um, you know, there was even a point where people, um, there was some reporting that he was thinking of pardoning himself and or his family. Um, and so, you know, we looked at reforming the pardon. Um, you know, one of the one of the one of the solutions that we looked at is, for example, establishing a clemency board, um, as many states have, uh, where we can have criminal justice experts um, and and defenders fill the board um, and. And, and use the pardon power for what it's supposed to be, which is a corrective uh, for for injustice um, in our legal system. Um, and, and another one is a constitutional amendment, um, you know, to to very narrowly uh, limit the pardon power so that we make explicit in our constitution that the president of the United States um, cannot cannot pardon himself, that he cannot pardon um, his business associates and or um, people in his administration or people involved in investigations um, that are related to the president. Um, we also look at a whole a whole bunch of um, other stuff, including um, you know increasing whistleblower protections um, so that Congress has better oversight um, you know over over the presidency and the executive branch of our government. Um, we look at um, improving the the subpoena power um, and, and 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 strengthening the subpoena power of Congress so that they can actually bring people um, to to testify um, and so they can learn about what's going on in the executive branch. Um, so those are just a few of the many reforms um, that we that we we looked at in this series. And obviously, um, part of the steps that we believe that the government has to take in order to um, strengthen our democratic institutions um, is uh, for the Department of Justice uh, to prosecute uh, Donald Trump for the crimes that he committed in office. Okay, we're going to go to uh, a break uh, for our radio listeners, but we'll uh, be staying by uh, with our television listeners on Periscope TV. Uh, when we come back, uh, we will have more of Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. Our guest in this half hour is Abdullah Fayad, who is a opinion writer and member of the Boston Globe uh, editorial board, who's talking about a the publication in the Globe last week of a series of reforms that are designed to prevent uh, the United States from suffering from another full president like Donald Trump. I hope that doesn't offend you, but um, I was greatly offended by the uh, Trump administration, and um, I hope some of the suggestions uh, by the from the Boston Globe will be incorporated to prevent us from happening again. We'll be right back after this short message. Welcome back to Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. Uh, welcome back to our radio listeners. Uh, for our radio listeners, uh, if you'd like to watch the, uh, if you'd like to see Deadline DC as well as listen to it, uh, we uh, there are three options for watching the program. Uh, 
you can watch us on Periscope TV at uh, www.periscope.tv front slash Brad Bannon. You can watch us on Facebook Live at tinyurl.com front slash BB Facebook Live. And you can also see us on YouTube at tinyurl.com front slash Brad on YouTube. Uh, our guest in this half hour is Abdullah Fayad, who is an opinion writer uh, and member of the Boston Globe editorial page. Uh, the Globe made a big splash last week with its publication of a uh, recommendations and a blueprint for foolproofing the presidency. And again, if you're wondering why the uh, presidency needs to be foolproofed, well, just look at the last four years before Joe Biden. Uh, let me ask you this quick question about uh, prosecuting Donald Trump. Uh, there is some constitutional argument about whether you can uh, whether you can prosecute a president for his actions in office. Uh, there doesn't seem to be a question about the constitutionality of prosecuting him after he leaves office for things that don't have anything directly to do with this president. Uh, is it constitutional to prosecute a president for presidential actions? Yes, it is constitutional uh, to to prosecute a president for uh, crimes he committed um, in office. Um, you know, that's that's, for example, what they asked Robert Mueller, um, you know, during his uh, congressional testimony, um, you know, was, you know, can any of his report be used uh, for a future criminal case against um, you know, uh, Donald Trump as a private citizen after he left office? And the answer uh, was yes. Um, you know, in fact, there's nothing in, in our Constitution, nor do we have any laws written um, that you can't indict a sitting president of the United States for crimes that they committed. Um, you know, that's one of the recommendations that we make in the series is we ask the Department of Justice to revisit uh, the Office of Legal Counsel's memo from 1973 that Robert Mueller uh, operated under, um, you know, which says that a sitting president should not be indicted uh, for crimes they committed in office. Um, what we are calling for is uh, to revisit that memo and so that the Department of Justice can, in fact, indict a sitting president and just defer criminal charge, uh, criminal trials until they're out of office. Um, so when it comes to the Constitution, um, there is nothing in the law that says you cannot try a president of the United States uh, for any crimes that they committed. <clears throat> what was the rationale behind that memo from the Justice Department back in 1973 saying that you can't uh, uh, prosecute uh, a president while he's in office. What was the rationale of that then? You know, the rationale, um, you know, makes sense um, on the surface. Um, and that is that, you know, it would be quite a spectacle to indict a sitting president and it would effectively, uh, you know, prevent the president from being able uh, to perform their duties um, and serve the country because they would be completely, um, you know, overwhelmed uh, by the, 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 the criminal trial. Um, and so, you know, it makes sense from a national security standpoint, um, just from, you know, ensuring that we are properly governed um, to, to not really tie a president's arm um, in a criminal um, investigation or, or rather a criminal trial, um, you know, because, you know, we still have to presume uh, that the president is innocent until proven guilty um, and they have to go through due process like anybody else. Um, and so, 
you know, the, the flaw in that logic that we found um, as an editorial board, um, you know, we, we came to the conclusion um, that indicting a sitting president does not, um, you know, create that kind of spectacle if you defer the criminal trial until the president is out of office. Um, but it does restrain the president from continuing to abuse their power um, because it sends a signal that they are going to, uh, you know, face legal accountability for all of their actions in the Oval Office. Um, and so it, it, it would deter them um, from continuing to break the law. Um, we have clearly found out that Congress is unable or unwilling to perform its constitutional duty to hold a president accountable um, and impeach a tyrannical president and corrupt president who committed uh, crimes, uh, you know, high crimes, um, and, and, and remove him from office. Um, you know, our political leaders, our elected officials simply lack either the political will or courage um, to perform the, their constitutional duty. And so that's why we need these new guardrails, um, you know, such as our, you know, um, institutions, our legal institutions, um, to be able to hold a president accountable outside the means of impeachment. Okay, uh, let me ask you about another item that was uh, on the glo- the agenda in the uh, Boston Globe uh, article. Uh, you mentioned in the opening that uh, it would bar uh, nepotism in the White House. Uh, now, we all know that uh, Ivanka Trump and her uh, husband, Jared Kushner, played a big role in the Trump administration. Uh, explain why that was uh, a bad thing and why it's necessary to strengthen the nepotism laws. Well, it's a very bad thing because it does a couple of things. Uh, nepotism um, erodes uh, trust in public institutions um, because it's uh, you know uh, it's 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 an example of uh, petty corruption, um, and and so you know the public is is um, more likely um, to to feel distrustful of their government because it's it seems more uh, openly corrupt, um, and so trust in our public institutions is actually a very important in a well-functioning democracy. Um, And so you want to root out nepotism so you can root out corruption and so you can rebuild public trust in our institutions. So that's one. Um, The other thing is that, you know, nepotism does not produce the best government that we, we, we could have because, you know, for example, with the appointments of Ivanka and Jared, um, neither of them had the prior experience to serve in those roles in the White House, and the result was pretty catastrophic. Um, Jared Kushner, in particular, um, had no prior experience, um, you know, working um, on 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 in Middle East affairs. Um, he had no prior experience in public health. He was a real estate businessman, um, and there he was, um, you know, part of the leadership of the United States' government's coronavirus response team. And as we know, the United States fared um, very poorly during this pandemic. Um, And by some estimates, um, nearly a million Americans died, um, you know, and that's in part because uh, the president's son-in-law was overseeing or at least helping to oversee our government's response. And so that's why we have to strengthen our nepotism laws to apply to the president as well um, so that you can bolster public trust in our institutions so that we can produce the best government that we can have by employing the most qualified candidates and um, so that, you know, we 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 can, um, you know, uh, return uh, to having a civil ser- civil servants who are more loyal to the institutions um, rather than the presidents um, and their families. 
Uh, Abdullah, thanks very much for joining us today on Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. Uh, I urge everybody to read the article in the Boston Globe on recommendations for foolproofing the presidency. Uh, I want to thank our guest, uh, Abdullah Fayyad, uh, who is an opinion writer and member of the Boston Globe editorial page. Uh, we'll be back with more of Deadline DC uh, with Brad Bannon after this break with our provocative progressive political panel. Uh, our guests are Democratic strategist Tim Zink uh, and our own executive producer and progressive activist Mark Grimaldi. Thank you very much, Abdullah. Thanks for having me. Welcome back to Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. I'm Brad Bannon because no one else would take on the job or the responsibility or the foolishness that goes along with it. Uh, we're going to start this half hour off with a clip from uh, Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez on the fate of the Biden Build Back Better plan in the Senate. As you well know, Democrats have three votes to spare in the House. So if the White House comes to you, if Democratic leaders come to you and say, this is the best you're going to get right now, would you and fellow progressives still say no to this? Well, I think the thing is, is that this isn't the best that we can get. And I do think that we need to talk about the elephant in the room, uh, which is Senate Democrats, which are blocking crucial items in a democratic agenda um, for very, I think, uh, for reasons that I don't think hold a lot of water. And for folks saying, okay, you know, we need, where are you going to get these 50 votes? I think we really need to start asking some of these democratic senators where they plan on getting 60 votes. Um, these 10 Republican <laughs> senators, that there's a theory that we're going to get support for that out there. Um, I think is, is, is a claim that doesn't really hold water, particularly when we can't even get uh, 10 senators to support a January 6th commission. Yeah, no, I hear and you so generally I think that the speaking, argument that we, but on this particular bill, they have five. And, you know, my understanding is that it is possible if everything comes together, they could get 10. So just on infrastructure. Mm hmm. Yeah, well, I think then the question that we have to make is that there's a fork in the road, which is do we settle for much less and an infrastructure package that has been largely designed by Republicans um, in order to get 60 votes? Or can we really transform this country, create millions of union jobs, revamp our power grid, get people's uh, you know, bridges fixed and schools rebuilt with 51 or 50 uh, Democratic votes? And I think the argument that we need to make here is that it's worth going it alone if we can do more for working people in this country. You know, with 50 votes, we have the potential to lower the age of Medicare eligibility so that more people can be covered and guaranteed to their right to health care, as opposed to, you know, 60 votes where we do very, very little. And the scope of that is defined by a Republican minority that has not been elected to lead. So Okay, that was Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez uh, talking about the need to uh, for the Senate to pass a fundamental, uh, very broad-based, ambitious uh, version of Joe Biden's Build Back Better plan. 
this half hour of Deadline DC is brought to you by my company, Bannon Communications Research, which polls for progressive issue groups, labor unions, and Democrats. The roadblock facing Joe Biden's Build Back America plan in the Senate is very problematic for the future of the nation. Biden's proposal would restore America's crumbling infrastructure, make America economically competitive internationally, fight the ravages of climate change, and reform a tax system that favors bankers and billionaires and hurts hardworking families. The Senate would squander an opportunity to make America uh, whole if it refuses to follow the president's lead and make fundamental changes in the way the United States does business in the 21st century. You can read the rest of this column and all my columns to the Hill at muckrack.com uh, front slash Brad dash Bannon. Now it's time for our provocative progressive political panel. Our guest panelist today is Tim Zinn. Tim is a principal at Molecule, a public affairs and business company. Tim has spent his distinguished career shaping public policy, especially environmental policy and politics. His Twitter handle is Green Crude. Joining Tim on the panel is progressive political uh, activist Mark Grimaldi. Mark has worked for several Democratic presidential candidates, including Joe Biden. He's also active in campaign finance reform and efforts to promote cancer research. Mark's Twitter handle is Mark J. Grimaldi. That's M-A-R-K-J-G-R-I-M-A-L-D-I. Uh, okay, panel, uh, thanks for joining us today. <laughs> Uh, first of all, let's start with the uh, Biden uh, Build Back Better program, uh, which is in danger in the Senate. Uh, right now, my guess is uh, Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia uh, is not in favor of uh, uh, ending the filibuster. Uh, he's also says he would hold out for a bipartisan infrastructure deal, uh, which means you couldn't pass this thing with 50 or 51 <clears throat> votes. You would need 60 votes, uh, which essentially means that uh, Republicans have veto power on the nature of the package. Uh, a group of uh, 10 uh, Republican and Democratic senators have proposed a uh, what I would call a bare bones infrastructure package uh, that really doesn't deal with many of the fundamental problems facing our nation. Uh, it's basically, you know, to fix bridges and roads, uh, and it doesn't deal that re really that much with climate change or inequities in the tax structure um, or American competitive competitiveness in the world economy. Uh, it's a really bare bones package. Uh, so, uh, Tim, uh, why don't we start off with you? Why do you tell us why you think it's important uh, for the Senate to pass the full and unabridged version of the Biden? and build back a better program. Yeah, well, Brad, I, I think we, as a, as a globe, are facing a catastrophic um, 
you know, event, which is called climate change, uh, that we have to address uh, through an infrastructure bill. And we have to develop the uh, the wherewithal and the capability of the United States so that we lead it as the United States lead in the 21st century and um, develop technology that our U.S. companies can export abroad to help other companies or other states, nations uh, reduce their carbon intensity. And so there's tons of reasons why we need to go big on a infrastructure bill. And one of them is absolute the, um, the, the, you know, the effects of climate change that we are going to be facing, not in a decade, but we're already facing today. You know, in the West Coast, we face significant fire and drought issues, uh, wildfires and droughts. Um, we face Kevin is coming to us from Seattle, by the way. He is yeah. a long time, long time denizen of the West Coast. That's right. That's right. On the East Coast, we we don't face as many of those issues, but we face very, very significant uh, uh, environmental impacts to fishing and other other industries that are impacted by the global climate uh, warming. And so, um, in addition to you know all of the things we need in roads and bridges and infrastructure to be put people back to work. Um, we really have to address these major, major issues because it's all about global competitiveness against China, who's investing billions and billions in lowering, you know, the impact of their industry's um, carbon dioxide on climate. Yeah, well, you know, let me ask you about that, Tim. Well, let's uh, <clears throat> get back to that. Mark, uh, do you want to weigh in on the uh, full and unabridged uh, Biden Build Back Better program? Yes, I think um, absolutely the need is there, as Representative Ocasio-Cortez um, put forth. This is not the best we have to offer. This is our opportunity as Democrats to lead, and the pressure needs to be put on Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema, uh, frankly, to to make sure that it is part of the plan, and if not, then to go the way of reconciliation. Um, for those who aren't familiar with the clean electricity standard, that was going to be part of the, um, the actually the, the biggest part of the environmental portion of the infrastructure plan. And it was very ambitious, but also a game changer where you would basically take um, by 2030, President Biden wants to have 80 percent of our electric grid powered by renewable energy, which is currently being powered by fossil fuels. So that type of change would be massive because um, I believe, and Tim's more of an expert on this by, than I am, but I believe something like a quarter of our emissions come from from those sources in the electric grid. So I know we're coming up against a break, Brad, but that's everything. That's us. That's our children, our grandchildren. I mean, that's who we're fighting for. So we can't just throw our hands up and say, oh, well, Joe Manchin. It's just, it can't work that way. Right. That's right. Yeah, we are coming up to a break, uh, but we will be back with more of Deadline DC with Brad Bannon and our provocative progressive political panel after this break. Today on the panel, we have Tim Zink uh, and our own Mark Grimaldi. We'll be back right after these messages.
Okay, welcome back to Deadline DC and the Locative Progressive Political Panel. Our guests on the panel today are Tim Zink, who is uh, an environmental activist uh, and the principal at Molecule, uh, which is a public affairs and business company based in the Great Pacific Northwest, as is Tim. Uh, also on the panel today is progressive activist uh, Mark Romaldi. Uh, Tim, let me ask you, uh, in the last uh, session, uh, the session that just ended of the Washington State Legislature, uh, Governor uh, Jay Inslee uh, was uh, able to convince a uh, legisl- the legislature to enact a very strong environmental package. And could that serve a mo- as a model of what we could do nationally? I think so, Brad. It's a really it's a great concept because this was done on a purely Democratic majority basis. There were there were no Republican votes in favor of the Climate Commitment Act or the Low Carbon Fuel Standard or the HEAL Act that was created in this legislative session of in Washington. This uh, these this package of legislation is has been um, sort of heralded as the most comprehensive and aggressive climate action legislation that the United States government has ever seen. And at, at, you know, at the federal level, we should take notice of that because here we are out in the great Pacific Northwest, as you said, and we had to pass that law with purely a democratic majority. And maybe members of the United States Senate should take notice that everything isn't all about bipartisanship. It's about getting things done. And that's what Americans are really expecting coming out of this you know, pandemic that we've just experienced for 16 months. So, you know, get it done, guys. Okay. Uh, Mark, uh, last week or over the weekend, we played the clip from uh, Representative uh, Ocasio-Cortez. There have been a couple of members of the the Democratic uh, Progressive House Caucus uh, who have said that if the Senate doesn't include uh, substantial uh, parts uh, of the president's legislation to fight climate change uh, in the Senate, uh, House progressives may vote against the final bill. Uh, first of all, uh, and in order to force the Senate to take action. Uh, do you think that's a good idea, Mark? Well, since then, it's expanded um, to some Democratic senators, actually, including um, Martin Heinrich, Senator Martin Heinrich of New Mexico, Brian uh, Schatz of uh, Hawaii, Michael Bennett of Colorado, Ed Markey of, of Massachusetts as well, um, all saying that they are not willing to vote for a bill that's watered down and has no climate provisions. So, um I think, you know, they're starting to make their voice heard. They've stayed on the sidelines somewhat, you know, to try to let the bipartisan talks um, progress. But I think they start to see them going away from including any climate provisions. And I think it's the right time to do it, Brad, to answer your question, because I think there's just too much at stake. Um, There's a lot of things that are important in the Democratic agenda. But I think um, fewer important than I I think voting rights, I, I would put. Um, right up there with climate legislation because of the the sheer urgency of both of them. 
Um, we don't have, as Tim said, we don't have a decade. It kept Things kept being almost like a decade away, a decade away. But we're seeing those effects, and it's only going to get worse, and it's only going to cost us more money than if we do something now. It's it's similar to healthcare in a sense of, do you want to do this the preventative way, where things are preserved that you may never get back and you're going to save money, or do you want to do it the hard way? Now, Brad, you know, you have a good way of cutting to the core of, okay, let's cut out the BS, but you know, what's going to actually happen? You know, we're stuck with Joe Manchin basically being the president in some ways and to a, a certain extent, Senator Cinema. Um, but I do believe that they, in the end, are they going to want to go down as the ones who sunk the infrastructure package? Um, you know, maybe they turn around and point the finger at the Democrats who are like you brought up, Brad, who are not willing to go forward without climate legislation. But I, I just don't see that happening, to be honest with you. I think if they stick to their guns, there's going to be something included. Now, there is some ways to to work out the package like they were talking about that clean electricity standard. There's different ways to get to carbon neutral. They may be able to include some things that are carbon capture devices, which isn't part of the initial provision maybe, but that's where I think you negotiate. You negotiate within including some climate provisions. And I think you have to, you have to make a dent in that because this is as good of an opportunity as we may get. You may not have uh, the majority in the, in the Senate and in the House, uh, you know, mm-hmm. come 2022. And then you're then you're you've nothing. You know, they're not going to negotiate with you. Mitch McConnell's not going to negotiate with you. So I think this is the time to push. And I'd rather be arguing with fellow Democrats about where to go and pushing them than pushing up against a wall that's not going to get anywhere in two years. OK, uh, Tim, uh, if you had the opportunity uh, to talk to Senator Manchin um, about the filibuster, um, about the need for a big uh, infrastructure package that includes uh, tax breaks for middle class Americans, uh, efforts to aggressively fight climate change. Uh, what would you say to him? Senator? Your constituents and the people of Virginia deserve new infrastructure. They deserve jobs. They deserve a just transition to a clean and healthy energy system that the benefits uh, accrue to the working men and women of Virginia, West Virginia. And um, and we, uh, we think you should be a leader in proposing and supporting a you know, a package that's that's resolves many of these issues. And and Senator, just look at the polling. You know, going big is much better for your caucus. It's better for you as United States senator and it's better for our country. And so I just uh, lay it right at the feet of his constituents and what he what he needs to be successful. Okay. Uh, Mark, uh, you brought this up, so let me uh, ask you a question on a different subject. Uh, Several progressives and progressive organizations uh, have uh, called on uh, Supreme Court Justice Stephen Beyer uh, to resign, which would give uh, President Biden an opportunity uh, to fill his seat. And part of the motivation here is uh, no one really knows what's going to happen in the midterm elections in November of next year. Uh, The Democrats may have a still have a majority in the House and the Senate or they may not. 
Uh, I think it's too early to tell. Uh, but uh, and the idea is to get uh, give Joe Biden uh, an opportunity to uh, replace Justice Byer while there's still a Democratic Senate. Uh, wh- what do you think of this idea? I Did think Justice Byer resigned. Absolutely. And allow Joe Biden. Absolutely. I think he's got to look at the reality of the situation. And I understand he wants to resist any sort of politics being uh, pushed on the court, but that ship has sailed. Um, If he paid attention to why Merrick Garland is attorney general and not a Supreme Court justice nominee, he needs to look no further than that. And if he needs a reminder, Mitch McConnell, Senator McConnell, uh, Majority Leader McConnell, which I know you love hearing, Brad, uh, yes, I just do. just announced a reason to today, which is he said on Hugh Hewitt's uh, t- radio talk show that he would be unwilling to let President Biden fill a Supreme Court uh, vacancy if the Republicans took back the Senate majority uh, in the 2022 midterms once they were seated. You know, if that was the case, he he just said it as much today. So that's as much of a reminder as you need. Um, and I think that he's already going to be seeing with some of these upcoming cases. Justice Breyer, that is, how politicized the court has become and will become now with a six to three uh, conservative majority. Um, And I think that he's got all of the motivation that he needs. Is that the kind of legacy that he's going to want to leave behind is not allowing his seat to be filled by someone who is um, just, you know, more of a democratic mind. And I just don't think that that's how he's going to want his legacy to be left. And the more he hears comments like um, Minority Leader McConnell's today, hopefully that will serve as a reminder to him why he needs to to retire sooner rather than later. Tim, uh, you seem to agree enthusiastically. You have 30 seconds to make your case. Many of us Guys over 50 need to wise up and get with it and figure out that the politics are different than they were when we first started in it. And the same with the court. And we need to fight hard, harder than we ever have and give these these new ideas a chance to succeed. And that's just really what I believe. Okay, Uh, I want to thank uh, the panelists. Uh, I want to thank all our guests today. Uh, Fayad from the Boston Globe. Tim Zink from Molecule, and progressive activist Mark Romaldi. Leslie Marshall will be back tomorrow. Be safe and strong in these troubled times, and make sure you watch and tune in to Deadline DC every Monday, 3 p.m. Eastern Time, or podcast anytime at periscope.tv. Thank you, and we'll chat again next week.